I'm glad to be with you this morning. Thank you, Mark, for uh, praying First Peter. This morning, I'm going to ask you to turn First Peter chapter two. It's on page 1075 in your uh, the Bibles hanging around your seats, and please follow along as we open the Word. Uh, I want to talk about a simple approach to Christian growth, and the reason I call it simple approach is because it's got three points. And they're, they're really simple. Um, one of those is learning to live in a therefore. And so we're, we're going to talk about what that means. The second one deals with what the Puritans called mortification, putting away sin, dying to sin. And the third is craving the word, hungering for the word, living in the word. Now, we could add many more things. We could talk about prayer but that's, in, that's included. As we feed on the Word, we're also to be putting into practice praying the Word. And, and uh, our, our brother Mark modeled that for us so beautifully to help us see how that engrafted Word begins to work out in us in our prayer life. Uh, and we, we could add fellowship, obviously. We can add worship. We can add witness. We, I mean, we can keep going in adding means of growth. But I want us to look at these three simple means of growth that we find in the first three verses of First Peter chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is God's inerrant, infallible, eternal word. May he write that word on our hearts. Well, another thing happens in the Christian life. Uh, our lives in Christ are all of grace. It's all God's doing. It's all God's work. And he alone gets the glory. I mean, none of us can boast in what we've done to save ourselves, or even what we've done to grow in Christ. And yet with that growth, the Christian life is never passive. And that's perfectly clear when we see lots and lots of commands in Scripture. The Ten Commandments were read for us out of Exodus 20, and we think upon those, and then we see them fleshed out in magnificent ways throughout the New Testament. Uh, think about how Paul dealt with these two juggling ideas that the whole of the Christian life is the work of God, and yet we are not passive in what he is doing. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's kind of a startling thing, isn't it? Work out your salvation with, with fear and, and trembling for... It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And, and so how do we understand that this work of grace, is, is, this work of salvation is all of grace, and even our growth is a work of God's grace, and yet we're not the proverbial knots on the log just sitting there and saying, okay, I'm letting go and letting God. No. We're actively engaged. We're actively involved. I, I love the way John Murray explained this. He was a Scottish theologian. He's gone on to glory now. He's got a wonderful book. Karen and I are going through it right now in our evening devotion time called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. It is a good one to add to your personal library. Um, so uh, I'll toss out a few of those for you today to think about. Good investment. All right, this is what John Murray wrote. God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours so that the conjunction or coordination of both produce the required result. And there, there are a lot of groups that teach that kind of thing. God does his part, we do our part. And everything works out wonderful. No, that is heresy. He says, God works in us and we also work. 
but the relation is that because God works, we work. That's it. Because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. And this working of God is directed to the end of enabling us to will and to do that which is pleasing to him. Or to put it another way, we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ as evidence that we're born of God. That doesn't produce laziness. It doesn't produce uh, passivity. But rather, because we're born of God, it produces endurance and perseverance. Because of the grace that we've experienced in Jesus' saving work, God has put the willing, the desire, and the working, the enabling in us so that we grow spiritually within the framework of this new nature that is in Christ. And so there bubbles up within the heart of every true believer a desire to grow in Christ. And, and I would say this, if there is persistently no desire to grow in respect to salvation, that's the phrase that Peter uses, if there's persistently no desire to grow in respect to salvation, it is likely that such a person is not a believer. Or to put it another way, one means of assurance that we're in Christ is our growth in understanding and applying salvation in Christ. We grow with respect to salvation because there's something in us, Jesus Christ, dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit, so that we desire to grow. Now, that doesn't mean we all grow at the same speed. It doesn't mean that we're like a rocket launching and every day we're soaring to new heights. It's not going to happen. I mean, face the reality. I mean, a tree doesn't do that. A tree grows a little bit every year, then the rest of the year it's being shaped and blown about and it's being twisted and turned and beaten upon by the sun and climbed upon by lots of squirrels and other and children and sometimes guys and being moved around. But it, that growth is being solidified. The Lord does that in our lives. He grows us. We go through periods where we grow and then that growth gets solidified. Now, Peter makes this, this point so clear when he explains this God-given means of growth that, that we'll consider those, uh, those three simple approaches to growth of living in the therefore, putting away sin, feeding on the word. He says, this will be true, verse 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And he uses two metaphors in that phrase in verse 3. One, uh, if you have tasted, expresses the experience of salvation and the kindness of the Lord expresses salvation itself. So think about that for a moment. To taste something is to experience it. This is the language of Psalm 34, 8, which Peter probably had in mind as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So the psalmist says, taste him. Taste. I mean, that, that's something that affects us, isn't it? Taste and see. Your eyes are connected to your taste buds in that sense, he's saying. That he's using that metaphorically. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so his goodness is found in our experiencing his saving mercies. And then the, the second metaphor is the kindness of the Lord. And that explain, is expressing the saving grace of God in Christ. His kindness is shown in the new birth, that we are birthed by the Spirit of God through the work of the gospel and the application of the redemptive work of Jesus at his cross and resurrection. Or to put that together, Peter is writing that the means of grace for spiritual growth is something that you will make use of if you have experienced the saving mercies of the Lord. If you've not experienced saving grace, then you do not have the ongoing desire to grow in Christ. And so you wonder, what is this weird stuff these other people are doing? 
It's not weird at all for those who are Christians. It would be weird for someone who is not. But we're praying and we're seeking the Lord and we're, we're dying to sin and, and we're fighting and battling to, to walk with the Lord. You see, the means of grace and spiritual growth are for those who have experienced saving grace. And so as we study this passage today, we either find affirmation and direction in how to grow in Christ, or this passage brings us to realize, I need the saving grace of God. I've never been born of God. I've never tasted of him, and I desire him. Now, what does it mean to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? Or as Peter puts it, to grow in respect to salvation. Uh, I'm, I'm laboring at this point because I, I want us to be very clear in understanding what it means to grow before we consider those means for growing. I'll quote another wonderful book. J.C. Ryle, who's Bishop of Liverpool in the 19th century, in his book, Holiness, another one of those classic books. Good one to be on your bookshelf, not to sit there, not because it looks real pretty, because there's really some good material in it. This is what Ryle wrote. When I speak of growth in grace, I only mean increase in the degree, size, strength, vigor, and power of the graces which the Holy Spirit plants in a believer's heart. I hold that every one of those graces admits of growth, progress, and increase. I hold that repentance, faith, hope, love, humility, zeal, courage, and the like may be little or great, strong or weak, vigorous or feeble, and may vary greatly in the same man at different periods of his life. Something that Mark and I heard this week from Ligon Duncan, he, he was talking about sanctification. He said there are times where at one and the same time, we are both growing in, in some areas, in other areas we're struggling. And that's part of what J.C. Ryle is saying. He said, when I speak of a man growing in grace, I mean simply this, that his sense of sin is becoming deeper, his faith stronger, his hope brighter, his love more extensive, his spiritual mindedness more marked. He feels more of the power of godliness in his own heart. He manifests more of it in his life. He is going on from strength to strength, from faith to faith, and from grace to grace, and we could add, and from glory to glory. But how do we grow in respect to salvation? We're to be regularly pursuing growth in the Christian life by the means that God has provided. And it's wonderful. He has provided what we need so that we might grow and mature in Christ. So what are these means of grace? As I mentioned, we could add to the list, but I want us to consider three that are most basic. First, live in the therefores. Live in the therefores. Or keep tying the therefore not. You'll, you'll see what I mean here in a moment, I think. Christian growth doesn't start with our actions. And, and this is where Peter's making this so clear. Paul does the very same thing. John does the very same thing. It begins in the work of Christ, and not only begins in the work of Christ, but it is sustained and enabled and strengthened in the redemptive work of Christ. And that's especially notable with the first word in verse 1, the word therefore. The ESV translates it so. I'm not sure how the... Uh, the CSB, CSB, CBS, CSB, yeah, uh, one of those. Uh, the, the, all right, we, we, we'll get it. So, but the, the first word here is therefore. And so what Peter is doing, he's tying a the, theological knot. Anytime you see therefore, you're, you're pulling from what has already passed. You're, you're thinking about what the biblical writer has already stated and now you're pulling it into what he's declaring. So if you see the word therefore and you just slide over it, you've missed the context of what he's saying. It's not a throwaway word. This is one of those that says, because of this, now this. So what does it mean? Therefore. 
Well, Peter's tying this theological knot to keep us secure, to keep us from slipping when it comes to growth. And what he does, in this sense, he takes us back to the redemptive mercies of, of Christ that are shown by the word therefore. Now, climbers use a, a, a knot called a bowline knot. It's really just two loops. But once those loops are fixed together, they will not come loose. And I've, I've tried it before. I've tried the bowline, and, and I've hung on. It's, it has contained and suspended me and held my weight up, and I'm, I've been very relieved that that knot doesn't slip. Well, that's what Peter's doing. He's giving us a good bowline knot that, that will not in any way come apart. And he binds our growth to two particular redemptive truths. First is the work of redemption. Now, when he commands his readers in verse 17 of chapter 1 to conduct yourselves with fear during your time of stay on the earth, he does this, he says, because you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Notice what he says in, in verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear uh, uh, during your, the, the time of your stay on earth. Verse 18, knowing that you were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold inherited from your feudal way of life or from your forefathers, but rather... He, he says, you've been redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so what does he do? He says, you're to have this holy, reverent, God-conscious fear that affects the way you live. And you have that because he takes us back to Jesus and his cross as he bore our sins upon that cross as our Savior. And as he felt the weight of our sins and God poured out the full measure of his wrath on his son on our behalf. How do you have that holy fear? Because you see how that sin that Christ bore was affected by the wrath of the Father. You see what he did. And so just as in the Old Testament era where the, the lamb upon whose head the sins were transferred and it was slain and just blood was poured out as a substitute in sacrifice for sins, far much more the perfect Son of God, the incarnate Son, bearing our sins in His own body on the tree, on the cross, took away the judgment and He took away the guilt and He took away the penalty of sin. Isaiah 53 said, The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So that's what Peter's doing. He said, go back. Go back and see what Christ has done. But notice the language. Peter wants us to understand the costliness of redemption, that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, he says, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It's as though he were saying, feel the balance of your sins in the scales of justice, it just plunges to the bottom. You say, well, I'll put my good works on the other end. It doesn't move. Not at all. Nothing. But then God, in his great mercy and love, sent his son, and his son bore those sins. And the weightiness of Christ's redemptive work for us move those scales of divine justice so that through the work of Christ we are freed from the shame and condemnation. So what can redeem a guilty soul before God? Peter says it's not silver and gold. It's not a lamb, a goat, or a bull. It's not a hundred thousand deeds. As the hymn writer put it many years ago, nothing can for sin atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And what does this priceless sacrifice of Christ do? He delivers us from condemnation, and he brings us into this new life so that, as he says in, in verse 21 of chapter 1, so that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope is no longer in yourself. It's no longer in your deeds. It's no longer in an institution. Your faith and hope. Or in God, this God who's given us these saving promises in Christ. 
No longer do you trust yourself for righteousness, but you trust the promise of God in Christ. And through him, you and I, sinners worthy of hell, have been counted righteous, fully just before God. Do you know that experience? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good in his saving mercies? And so the first thing, live in the therefore. If you're going to grow in Christ, you've got to live in the redemptive work of Jesus. It's not just something you say, well, Jesus saved me, and I'm going to press on to bigger and better things. There are no bigger and better things. You live in him. You live in his redemptive work. Second, not only the work of redemption does, does Peter point back with that word therefore, but he's also pointing to the work of regeneration, the new birth, being born again. And so the second loop of this therefore not that is tying us together in our relationship to the Lord is the new birth. And again, interestingly, Peter gives a command. You see this in chapter 1, verse 22, that believers are to fervently love one another from the heart. But he does not do it as a means to righteousness, nor does he declare that so that we are trying to fervently love one another from the heart by our own power. But rather he tells the church fervently love one another from the heart in verse 23 for he said i'm giving you a rationale for how and why you can love one another for you have been born again not of seed which is imperishable that is uh, uh, but uh, not not uh, of seed which is perishable but imperishable that is through the living and abiding word of god and so this seed what, what does it mean by the seed? He said, it's the word of God. It's the living and abiding word of God. And then in verse 25, he says, and this is the word that was preached to you. What, what, what does it mean? Does this mean that he, he's talking about life lessons for how to get along with your boss at work? No, that, that's not what he has in mind. This word that was preached to you is the gospel of Christ. And so what, what Peter is talking about is it is the gospel of Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes and opens our understanding and brings our dead minds to life and floods our dark hearts with the light of the gospel of Christ and we see and we believe. It is this message promise, as he talks about in verses 10 through 12 in chapter 1, promised through the prophets of old they were looking for the good news they were proclaiming it and they were waiting for christ the spirit of christ within them was looking for that day when jesus christ would come and that god would cause the iniquity of us all to fall upon his suffering servant his son the messiah jesus the lord and so this seed takes root in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus talked about in John 3. You remember that nighttime guest that Jesus had by the name of Nicodemus, this Pharisee of Pharisees, his teacher of Israel. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, don't act so shocked. This is nothing new. This is what Ezekiel was talking about. He even showed you in the Valley of Dry Bones. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born from above. And so the Holy Spirit plants the seed of the gospel in our awakened hearts so that whereas we were formerly resistant and stubborn in defiance against God, something happens. We can't explain it rationally. But something happens and we gladly, willingly put our faith and trust in Jesus and repent of our sins and the gospel comes to life in us and this new life springs up where there had been deadness and trespasses and sins and the light of Christ shines in us where there had been darkness and callousness of heart and we're born of the Spirit so that God's gracious act to bring us to himself causes us to be willing to believe the gospel of Jesus in his saving death and resurrection. And so you got these two loops, redemption and regeneration, that knot together and they cannot come loose. And they become the basis for our growth in our spiritual life. That's why he starts with therefore. 
and the, the subsequent means of grace, the, the direction that he's heading and putting aside sin and craving for the word now has a foundation for spiritual growth because of the redemptive work of Jesus and the experiential work of the new birth. In other words, we do not try to grow in Christ without first knowing him in his saving power. And so if you listen today and you think, oh, if I can just do these things, then I'll be in Christ. No, 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 you won't. Only Christ can make you in Christ. And he calls you to repent and believe. And as you repent and believe, he graciously implants the seed of his life within you. And now there's this new desire to grow. And so we cannot grow in respect to salvation if we have not known that salvation. And so the therefore not that we're looking at redemption and, and regeneration liberates us to make use of the means that God has given us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So first, live in the therefores. When you get up in the morning, live in the therefores. Go back to that gospel. You're going to start your day? You're going to launch out in your day? Face its challenges and demands? Having to deal with folks that sometimes are contrary and aggravating? Maybe having to deal with your own aggravating self as you look in the mirror. Are you going to do that without living in the therefores? That's not a good move. Live in the therefores. Come back to the gospel. Live in that gospel. Come back to the promises in the new birth. Second, put off sin. Put off sin. We, we have this ill-advised tendency in American Christianity. We're, we're fine with the ultimate end of salvation. We're fine with heaven. But we don't want to think too much about it. We don't want to work up this longing for it. See, there, there's a conflict because we're, we're being captured so much by the world around us. Uh, we're not really interested so much in the present work of salvation. We like the idea that we're going to heaven and not going to hell. But sometimes we're not so interested in putting away sin by the enabling work of the Holy Spirit. We want to be forgiven, but we're not so sure we want to die to sin in our lives. And when, we're, when we've been justified in Christ or counted righteous before God by the work of Jesus Christ so that our standing with God is one who is righteous, we're also simultaneously being sanctified in Christ. We're being made holy in practice. Sinclair Ferguson, another, one, another book devoted to God. I'm, I'm just telling you a bunch of favorite books right now. Devoted to God by Sinclair Ferguson is one of the best books on spiritual growth I've ever read. Maybe the best. And, and this is what he says when he talks about being counted righteous and being sanctified. Both are given in Christ. Our new status is always accompanied by our new condition. So our status, we've been justified. Our condition we're being sanctified. He said justification never takes place apart from regeneration. That's one of the therefores. The justification is the other therefore, this redemptive work of Christ. Justification never takes place apart from regeneration, which is the inauguration, the start of sanctification. It is therefore not possible to be justified without being sanctified and then growing in holiness. You see, this sanctification has both, uh, both present and ongoing dimensions. The, the first, the, the present, is what, what is often called definitive sanctification or positional sanctification. It means we are sanctified in a sense fully, finally, and completely. You remember when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, he was talking about this list of sins of the Corinthians. He says... And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You were. Paul is treating sanctification as though it is a complete final act, and in a sense it is. This is, this is so important for us to see because we can fall into the trap of thinking, 
I am working my way into sanctification. No, you're not. You're working from sanctification. You're working for something that's already there, and you're growing and maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so th this means that we are, in God's sight, holy in Christ. Now, does that produce passivity? No. And so that brings the, the second aspect of sanctification. And this is that, that ongoing dimension uh, to sanctification where we're growing in the practice of living in Christ as holy people. And we refer to this as progressive sanctification. So you, you've got definitive or positional sanctification. And then that second aspect is the progressive act of sanctification. And, and this sanctification, this work of holiness in our lives, affects every aspect of our being. Our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes, our relationships, our family, our service, our work, our witness, our worship. We just keep going on and on. Sanctification affects all of that because sin also affects all of that. So that's why the Lord is working holiness. Sin creeps into every aspect of our life to affect it, which is why sanctification, or which is another term for growing in the Christian life, growing in Christ, in that we're continually putting away sin. Now, notice a couple of aspects of this. First is the discipline of mortification. If, you, if you're not familiar with that word, it just means... Let me stretch it out, tease it out a little bit. It just means the killing power of the cross. You're learning how to die. You remember what Jesus said, do you want to follow me? Take up your cross. Die daily. Die daily. Paul said, I die daily. So we deny ourselves, we take up our cross and follow Jesus. We're, we're learning how to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So notice what he says in verse 1, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit, and I, I think he uses the word all because th there, there's so many different dimensions of these particular sins. So, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, because of the regenerating and redeeming work of Jesus, we're to respond by the power that he has given to us with new life in the Spirit, we're to respond by putting off or putting away sins in particular. So he, he's not saying just generalize, Lord, I just want to put away all my sins. He's saying, okay, which ones? So you really get serious in taking action and putting away these sins. Now, the identification of five sins in this case are really categories of sins. And, and that helps us, as John Calvin points out, to understand the whole character of sin that we're putting away. It's not just these sins. It's the whole range of sin. And, and the verb indicates our involvement, that we are engaged. There's no passivity in this. We are engaged in putting away sin. And this is consistent with what uh, John wrote of, of Jesus in 1 John 3, 5 when he talked about the application of the redemption of sin, or of, of the redemption from sin. He said, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, to take them away, die for them, yes, but to take them away in the life of his followers for in him there is no sin. And, and so Peter's use of the plural is indicating this is a corporate involvement. So as we gather to worship today, we are involved in helping one another put away sins. Now, how does that happen? One, we pray for each other. Two, we seek to model the Christian life for one another. Three, sometimes we exhort one another. Four, sometimes we rebuke one another. Say, brother, sister... This attitude of your heart, this action, it's not befitting a follower of Christ. I want to stick with you and pray for you and encourage you and help you in this. And so we're involved in these kinds of things. Uh, 
I found John Murray helpful again on this. He said, Sanctification is concerned precisely with this fact and has as its aim the elimination of all sin and complete confirmation, conforming to the image of God's own Son. Sounded like a little bit of Romans 8 language. To be holy as the Lord is holy. And then he adds, sin does not change its character as sin because the person in whom it dwells and by whom it is committed is a believer. So there's no sleight of hand here. Being a Christian, uh, you know, suddenly, well, I don't have any sin. No, you still do. That's why you're being sanctified. And so our sins are not suddenly no longer sins because we're a Christian. No, Jesus saves us in the Holy Spirit and dwells us so that by the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8, 13, we are to be putting to death the deeds of the body. That's one of the evidences in that section, verses 12 through 17 of Romans 8. That's one of the evidences that we're born of God. We're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, previous generations called this mortification. I love that term it's just, it's, it, because... It, it sounds deadly, doesn't it? And it's intended to because that's what it means. It, it's, so, it's a word that means that you are applying the killing power of the cross to your sins. So what is this mortification of sin? John Owen, the greatest of the Puritan theologians, in, in his book, Mortification of Sin and Believers, explained it like this. He said, let faith look on Christ. So how do you mortify the, the, your sins? Let faith look on Christ in the gospel as he is set forth dying and crucified for us. Look on him under the weight of our sins, praying, bleeding, dying. Bring him into the condition of your heart by faith. Apply his blood so shed to your corruptions and do this daily. And then he explains, the spirit alone brings the cross of Christ into our hearts with its sin-killing power. For by the Spirit, we are baptized into the death of Christ. And so Peter writes, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So this putting aside is synonymous with mortification. It's actually a word, a very simple word, common word that, that was used of taking off a garment. And so there is action on our part when we recognize sin in our lives. And we take action to die to that sin by the killing power of the cross. And then we replace it with the gracious virtues by the operation of the Holy Spirit. For instance, in, instead of all malice, which is an inclusive term for wickedness, we are... Uh, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 24, we're to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And, and that principle is set forth in Ephesians 4. If, if you think about what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, he said, instead of speaking falsehood, speak truth to one another. Instead of being angry, don't give the devil an opportunity and don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Instead of stealing, work hard so you'll have something to give to those who are in need. Instead of speaking in an unwholesome, slanderous way, speak only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. So we're not to die to sin and then put the gear of our lives in neutral. But rather we're to die to sin and slam it into drive to mirror Jesus Christ in his life. It's that process of Christian growth that teaches us more and more what it is to do just that. Second, uh, not only uh, do we practice this discipline of mortification, but second, we fight against relationship destroyers. Now, when you categorize malice, deceit, uh, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, they're, they're really relational. So malice is wickedness. It is ill will. Uh, it is, when you look at deceit, it is being cunning. It's trickery. It's treachery. It's making the appearance of truth, but instead you're duping others. Hypocrisy is pretense. It's speaking out of both sides of your mouth, the, the way we metaphorically express it. 
uh, is putting a mask on to hide the real self, is, is saying one thing and doing another, is professing to be faithful while acting unfaithfully. Envy is wanting for yourself what belongs to another. It is begrudging others uh, what they possess. And then slander is disparaging others, is blabbing secrets, is running down others. And all these have to do with relationships. They're relationship wreckers. But in the body of Christ, we're to be relationship protectors. And so these kinds of sins destroy trust and unity, fellowship, service, warmth, love, kindness, and every other Christian virtue. And so this action of putting away sins is really an extension of what Peter had already told the church. Fervently love one another. How are you going to do that? Put away sins in your life so that you really do fervently love one another. And so by offering these five particular sins, he's telling us that whatever stands in the way of fervently loving one another from the heart, put it away. Take it to the cross. Consider Jesus dying for that particular sin and suffering under the weight of that sin and shedding his blood to atone for us. And then ask him, bring the cross into my life. Apply the cross to that sin in my life. And then die to it. That means that you're intentionally trying to stamp it out. You're intentionally trying to get away from practicing that sin. And in its place, you are applying the appropriate virtue that has been wrought by the Holy Spirit. So in the place of deceit, you're, you're putting in instead truth and uh, truthfulness and transparency. In the place of hypocrisy, you're fervently loving, fervently loving from the heart, a genuineness. In the place of envy, you're rejoicing with your brothers and sisters in all that the Lord has given to them, and you're practicing a spirit of generosity to counter envy. In the place of slander uh, or disparaging others, instead you're encouraging and you're building up and you're spurring others to love and good deeds. And this is not a one-time event. You don't make some kind of decision and say, okay, I've died all my sin. No, that's a daily practice. That, that's why that, I love that, that, that small phrase in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul said, I die daily. Had you lived a Christian life, Paul? I die daily. That's what he's calling for. And so it's a daily life. We're taking up our cross daily, as Jesus told us in Luke 9, 23. We're confessing, repenting, and dying to sin daily. That, that's one reason in corporate worship we do corporate confession of sin because we're modeling what goes on daily. We're letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, and that Word is exposing sins, and we're taking them to the cross, and we're dying uh, to those sins. Uh, we, uh, we do not take off a day with dealing with sins, or sins will seize the day with vengeance. So this is something that we're regularly doing in Christian growth. We're learning to daily seek the Lord, daily confess and die to sin, daily to ask for the Spirit's fullness and power, daily to ask for Christ to be formed in us. John Murray summarizes it, what this means when he says, it is the concern of sanctification that sin be more and more mortified, and holiness ingenerated and cultivated. Sin, more and more mortified. Holiness, serious-minded about it, ingenerated. I don't ever use that word. You probably don't either. But Murray used it. You, you get the idea, don't you? Something you're doing is cultivated. And when he uses the word cultivated... He, he's helping us, keeps us from getting under condemnation because some of, the, some of us, the way our minds are wired, we just get under condemnation if we don't have immediate success. No, it's being cultivated. If you know anything about farming, cultivation is a long process. And that's what we're doing in the spiritual life, that long process. So are you serious about life in Christ?
you're not serious about life in Christ, then it's probably because you're an unbeliever. But if you're serious about life in Christ, then it means that you take seriously putting off sin, dying to it, so that you might live more and more with Christ being formed in you. So, live in the therefores, put away sin, and then third, crave the word. Crave the word. Now, Peter uses this such a simple metaphor to help us understand what it is to, uh, to crave the, the, the word. And, and when we talk about the word, I'm, I'm not talking about, again, finding life lessons uh, on something. I, I mean, there, there's so many just goofy things that American Christians do with the Bible to try to make us feel good about ourselves. Die to that. Now, when we talk about the Word, we're talking about the Christ-centered Word. We're talking about the fact that the Bible is a Jesus book. Old Testament, we've got our Old Testament scholar here. Old Testament, New Testament, it's a Jesus book. It's pointing us to Him, showing us Him. And so when we crave the Word, and, and uh, Peter puts it like this in verse 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it, by this Word... You may grow in respect to salvation. Peter, are you saying that if I do not spend time in the Word, I will not grow in respect to salvation? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. As a pastor for longer than most of you have been living, uh, 44 years, as a pastor for that long, I cannot tell you how many times someone would come into my office, they're struggling having some big problem it might it might be marriage it might be something at work it might be some other issue and so i'd ask them tell me about your uh, devotion life tell me about your reading of the word and over and over and over well i hadn't been very consistent i said really really so you want to deal with this issue of your life but you're not using the means that god has given you to address those issues of life you see what I mean? So we are to take advantage of what God has given us. So Peter uses this very simple uh, metaphor that we're to feed on the Word. That we'll, we will feed on Christ at the Lord's table in just a few minutes. And, and every day we're to be feeding on Christ as we go to the Word. We read the Word. We meditate upon it. We we inculcate it. We get it in our minds and hearts. We memorize it. We think about it. We apply it in our lives. Uh, the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs uh, said that if we would feed on Christ in the Word, we must purge our souls from the corruptions of flesh and spirit. So it goes back to why Peter first said that we are to uh, put away sin. And then he says, feed on the Word. Because those corruptions of sin are going to affect the appetite that we have for Jesus. And if we don't feed on him as he is revealed in the gospel, then we will not grow spiritually. Uh, Sibs wrote that these sins must be uh, taken away so that our spiritual appetite is not destroyed. And we must have the word. And since we must have the word, we must also deal with sin. And one of the ways we do, we do that, we deal with sin as we're reading and meditating on the Word. That's, that's part of the means God has given to us because He's showing us some of the therefores that gives us the power to deal with them, and He's putting a spotlight on those sins as we read the Word. Now, two things. First, longing for the Word. Simon Kistemacher said, Newborn babies act as if their life depends on the next feeding. Yeah, those of you who are parents have seen that, haven't you? Boy, everything comes unglued. They weep and they wail and they gnash their gums, you know, wanting to have something to eat. Well, Peter says that's what we're to do. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. Now, he's not using milk in the same way Paul did to the Corinthians or the writer of Hebrews does in, in Hebrews 6. They were using it somewhat pejoratively 
to, to speak of weakness. Ah, you're on milk instead of meat. Peter's not doing that. He just simply, by milk of the word, he's talking about the word and he's using babies to help us understand the kind of appetite, the kind of craving that we're to have. We need that same gospel-saturated word. And so a baby's natural desire and deepest satisfaction is for that milk. And likewise, Peter is saying, long for the pure milk of the word, this unadulterated, unconfused, unpolluted word of Christ. And the God who gives spiritual life to the soul maintains it with spiritual food. And that's what the word is. It's our spiritual food. Sibs writes, so in this feast there is to delight both the ear and the smell of the soul. The one with hearing the gracious promises of Jesus Christ, the other in receiving the sweet savor of that sacrifice that was offered up once for all. Nothing so sweet to the soul as the blessings of Christ. And if we, if we drift, back, uh, drift back into chapter 1, we find this repetitive use of the, uh, of the term word. We see it in verse 23, verse 25. Uh, Peter calls it the living and enduring word of God. It is this word which was preached to you, and he talked about it earlier in the chapter as well. But what he's doing, he's calling for the whole of Scripture that focuses on Jesus Christ to be our food. Now, not every passage is going to speak explicitly about Jesus. I read some things in Numbers this morning that did not speak explicitly about Jesus. Uh, I, I read some things in Ecclesiastes this morning that did not speak explicitly about Jesus. So, how is the Bible a Jesus book so that the whole of Scripture really points to him. Well, that's what Peter's calling for us to understand, to learn how to live on the Word and to see Christ in all of Scripture, to feed upon him. I, I love the help that Sidney Gradanus gives us on this, and I, I would point out uh, about five, at least five ways that we see Christ in all of Scripture. One, some passages help us to see the redemptive aim of God in Christ, and so when you see what's going on in the uh, in the sacrificial system, that's a redemptive aim. Laying laying hands on the head of the lamb and then slaying, and his blood poured out. That that's pointing to something that is inadequate to that which is adequate. Uh, second, are promises which God fulfills. Abraham, in your seed, in you, in your descendants. All the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's the promise of God. How's that, how was that fulfilled? Was it with Jacob? Was it with Judah? No. It was with Jesus. Uh, a third way that we see this is uh, through types and analogies pointing to Jesus and his redemptive work or pointing to his kingly reign or pointing to his royal priesthood that strange figure of Melchizedek that, that we read about in Genesis and the writer of Hebrews picks up on. Or those allusions to David's kingship that we see explained for us in the New Testament of the true king, the priest king, the Lord Jesus. A fourth way are some theological ideas that underpin the revelation of the New Testament. And, and you see this all over the place. It, it, it might be the theology of man that helps us see that we're created in the image of God and yet we're sinful people. How does that sin get addressed? And so you know, those theological ideas of salvation. And then fifth, some of the passages that the New Testament quotes or, or alludes to. And, and this is where you see that all over the Scripture. I, that, that's one reason I like for my Bible translation of the New Testament to give some kind of marker so that you, you know the New Testament writer is quoting an Old Testament passage. And a lot of times they'll use caps. You know, it's all caps, and, and that's the, uh, the citation. Or maybe it's uh, in bold print, or maybe it's italicized or something like that. But look and see how the New Testament writers used the Old Testament. Sibs reminds us, none but a Christian can have spiritual tastes answerable to a spiritual life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste him in the Christ-centered word. And then second, 
grow in salvation. We're, we're saved to make spiritual progress. We're not lifeless rocks, but instead, uh, as he says just in a couple more verses, we are living stones being built up in Christ with one another as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. How in the world are you going to do that? Because you're growing, not just individually, but you're growing corporately, and your individual growth in Christ is contributing to the corporate growth of the body of Christ. Long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by this Word, by it, you may grow in respect to salvation. Without feeding on the Word, we're not going to grow spiritually. So if you tell me I'm having trouble in my spiritual growth, and I ask you, tell me about your time in the Word, and, it, and it's eh, maybe a couple of days a week, maybe it's two minutes, then I'm going to tell you, no wonder. I mean, how are you going to do if you just eat a little skimpy breakfast, and that's it every day? For long, the energy is going to be sapped out of your life, and you're wondering, why am, why am I just suddenly, I just don't have any energy. I can't do my work. Why? Well, you're not feeding yourself. Much more so, if we have no appetite to feed on the Word, then maybe it's an indication that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word, to whom the Word proclaims, doesn't dwell in us. You see, the nature of life is that it grows. If it stops growing, it dies. And it's only as we feed on Christ and the Word that we grow in our salvation. And what happens when we do? What happens as we feed on him in the word we're enlarged by the promises of god in christ those promises begin to take on new meaning to us we're deepened in relationship to him our prayer life is affected our worship life our witness life our service our joy in the lord begin to grow proportionately we're enriched by understanding the christ-centeredness of the word and its application in our lives so that we look forward to even reading the book of Obadiah, Nahum, because somehow or another we're going to see how this is pointing us to Christ and we're prepared to face the uncertainties and trials of life because the Lord's been preparing our hearts for that. See, growth is organic. It's something we're engaged in, something we're aiming for, it's something we're desiring, longing for, anticipating praying for and this growth happens through the means that god has given us in jesus christ living in the therefores putting away sin craving the word murray wisely wrote sanctification is the sanctification of persons and persons are not machines it is the sanctification of persons renewed after the image of god in knowledge righteousness and holiness we're not machines, so you're not flipping the switch and, boy, all this stuff is going to happen, and we're just, we just got it going. No, you're going to go through struggles. That's okay. That's normal. I mean, you're a really normal person if you go through some struggles. But all the while, you're learning to go to the Word. You're learning to die to sin. You're learning to live in the therefores. And as you grow in Christ step by step, in his likeness, in his image, from one degree of grace to another, there's the steadiness in the process. doesn't happen in a flash, but we're using the ongoing means of grace entrusted to us for our spiritual growth. May we be faithful. Let's bow our heads together. If this meditation on God's Word and this message and the Word has exposed to your heart, I really have no desire for the Lord. It may be that you have not come to know Him. And so I call you to repent and turn to Him who died on the cross and rose from the dead that you might have life in Him, that He might indwell you. I know there are a number of folks here that would be more than happy to talk with you about what it means to really follow Christ. And if you're a Christian, maybe you've been discouraged by your growth, then pray today. Lord Jesus, I really do want to grow. Please strengthen my spiritual disciplines. Please help me to die to sin. Please help me to put on the armor of God every day. Please help me to live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
And then discipline yourself day by day to meet the Lord. And you'll come to that point to where that is your biggest longing. You'd rather do that than have a five-course meal somewhere. You'd rather feed on Christ. Father, we pray that this time of thinking about what it is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to grow spiritually, to grow as those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord, that you would use this both to awaken those who are unbelieving to repentance and faith in Christ and to stir the hearts of brothers and sisters in Christ to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to grow in respect to salvation. We pray for your grace and help. We pray that the enemy would not rob us of the word that we've considered this morning, but that you will work this deeply in us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.